Hello, WZIP. This is Natalie from Entertainment Rebooted, and today I'm doing something a little different. So recently I finished a book by River F.R. Kennedy titled The Chronicles of Draenic Resurgence, Rise of the King. Going by this title, and especially the cover art, it's probably obvious why I picked up this book. It's an independently published fantasy novel, including dwarf empires, kings in exile, elves, magic, orcs, etc. So it's no wonder that it made my TBR list. I immediately thought, like Lord of the Rings, and asked for it for Christmas. Well, I finally finished it, and I'm going to review it from the perspective of a creative writing minor workshopping a draft, because I thought that that could be, that could be interesting, a little insight into my classes that I was taking for my minor, in terms of a fantasy book, which is my preferred genre, thought it could be fun. I'm noting that this is the author's debut novel. It's independently published and that finishing a book at all is an achievement, one in fact that I have not reached yet. The author is also young, only a couple years older than I am, and he should be proud of having written a book at all. Any criticism of this book that I'm about to give is not intended to tear him or his work down. Neither is it to imply that I'm a better writer. It's just to give my opinion of the book as a reader, as well as how I would suggest improving on the craft given what I have learned so far. So for a little background on the author, River F.R. Kennedy was born in Michigan in June of 1998 and has been writing for about 10 years now. According to an Author Spotlight blog post that he was featured on in 2020 when the book was released, Kennedy began formulating the world and story for this back when he took a creative writing class in high school. At the same time, he led an LARP club, LARP, also known as Live Action Role Playing, and this was born from the world that he used in that. He claimed in the interview that he didn't know what a writing process was before starting this process, and he will now have some more vague outlines and plot breakdowns, but they will not be super detailed as he prefers to see where the story takes him. He's a pantser, basically. Believe it or not, this checks out. As a creative writing minor, I can tell you that writing processes are different for everyone, which is probably why he struggled to define them at first. It's basically just a method by which you write, and different writers write differently. Some are heavy plotters with a love of extensive character breakdowns and highly detailed plot outlines. Others are pantsers who just write with little to no outlines to experience the story as they go. Neither method is wrong, and most people fall in the in-between area. I, for example, will often do a bunch of world building, character building, and plotting, but then allow myself to discover and or tweak things as I go about the writing process further. Kennedy plans to have the Resurgent series be a trilogy, though he said it depends on the feedback he got from Rise of the King. With a pandemic happening around the time, it's unclear if he still plans on continuing the series as another book has not come out since the first in 2020. It is possible he's still working on it, but is in the writing phase. And he mentioned an upcoming baby in his interview, so doubtlessly he's been busy as well. This book, both his debut novel and the first of the series, was independently published in August of 2020. As for the plot, Resurgence Rise of the King centers around a dwarf empire, weakened after a civil war following the death of the last king. Kanan, the main character, and the previous king's only heir, fled his duties to embrace the life of a mercenary. He befriended a man named Drogar and an elf named Gwen. Just before they can score one more job and secure their retirement, the dwarf Ulrich and his wizard mage friend Jorin approach the two. It's time for Kanan to claim his crown, especially since an army of orcs, dark elves, trolls, and a dark wizard are bent on wreaking havoc on the weakened dwarf empire. Throughout the book, the characters face many battles culminating in the capital of Ragnall, where Kanan grew up. But will Kanan's people accept him after he abandoned him? Can he defeat the giant orc Taruk, who is bent on seeing him dead? To start, I'll focus on the characters. In my opinion, well-written three-dimensional characters are very important in good writing, 
because they allow the reader to better connect with the characters and become more invested in the story. If a reader does not care about the characters, they will not care what happens to them. Characters should have a clear, understandable motive, consistent behavior with their characterization, and they should undergo some sort of change throughout the book due to their experiences within it. They should have flaws, and the narrative should treat their flaws as flaws, rather than ignoring them completely. In terms of Rise of the King, the characters, especially the side characters, felt a bit flat. I think the reason for this is because the story's fast pacing. Characterization isn't focused on as much as the plot is. Additionally, and this was probably a gripe personal to me and my expectations, the fact that this group of mercenaries received such lavish treatment in times of war did not sit well with me. Perhaps I was thinking too much about Lord of the Rings, but watching Kanan get waited upon by servants, getting luxurious rooms, and having a party for his coronation amidst a war against the orcs felt like it kind of undercut whatever nobility he was meant to have. He would uproot the current rulers, most of who had been in power for a long time, and their luxury would be bestowed on him because of his blood rather than his deeds. And rather than turn down the luxury to focus more on the task at hand and conserve resources in times of war, he accepts them as if he's entitled to them. This is not commonly a trait found in a good king archetype, which is what I'm more used to. To be clear, there's nothing wrong with an established king having established luxury, but the situation has to suit it. In times of war, resources should be conserved. In times of peace, yeah, he can have a grand coronation. If an established king has lived in luxurious chambers for years, then it wouldn't be uncommon for him to keep them. It's just that in this situation, it rubs me the wrong way. I've not seen Kanan truly prove himself worthy given his past, nor do I remember it being established that the dwarves in these kingdoms were suffering under their previous rulers. Instead, he and his friends walk in and are treated like kings with little to no effort and allow unnecessary extravagance to be spent on them when they should be focusing on their war-torn country and people. It shows different priorities than I think that the author meant to show. Kanan's official coronation could have waited or been less extravagant. Speaking of our main character, my biggest problem with Kanan is that he feels no different at the end of the book than at the beginning. He gets captured and injured a lot and has to be saved quite frequently. This happening a couple times would not be unreasonable, given the dangerous situations they get into, but the frequency of these instances begins to give the impression that he cannot fight anything tougher than the usual lesser orcs and dark elves who are easily torn through like cannon fodder. He seems okay with battle strategy from what little I can tell, though I'm far from an expert, but half of his people hate him for how he left. The only reason people follow him now is because of his bloodline from what I can tell, and I don't find that compelling enough. Maybe for a figure like Aragorn, who was generations away from the former king and his people didn't know he existed until the events of the War of the Ring, but he proved himself multiple times. His leadership skills were clear with how he led the fellowship. He achieved victory at Helm's Deep. He kept morale high. He walked the path of the dead, something no one has ever done before, and recruited the army of the dead to turn the tide in the Battle of Pelennor Fields. Then he led the march on the Black Gate to allow Frodo time to destroy the ring. Kanan, on the other hand, has led a few battles, but he did not achieve any particularly great feats that I could notice against his more high-profile foes, even at the climax, at least not by himself. More than that, however, he's starting at a net negative. Not only does he have to lead his people, he has to make up for willingly abandoning them, something that does not apply to figures like Aragorn or even Thorin Oakenshield, who was also forced into leadership at a young age, and devoted his life to helping his people to the point that the halls of Arid Lewin were named after him. Leading from the front is not enough for Kanan. 
especially since there are other dwarf lords who do the same. What separates them? Their bloodlines. And if I was to choose a leader to follow, I would be more concerned with actions, and since Kanan abandoned the throne because he didn't feel ready for it, and then ran off to be a mercenary with his friends, he would be the last person that I would pick. While Thorin stayed by his people's side and helped build them and rebuild their race and get them a prospering home in Arid Luin, Kanan ran away because he did not feel ready for the kingship. The only reason that Kanan would be picked is because of his bloodline, but there is nothing in the world building where it states that dwarves hold loyalty to blood above all else. And usually, with the other fantasy descriptions of dwarves, honor, courage, and loyalty are as important as a bloodline, if not more important. Kanan does not have a plan to rebuild his war-torn kingdoms. He complains about not being able to escape the weight of the crown, of not being allowed to be alone ever again. He does not seem regretful for his shameful departure until he has decided to take his place as king. Before that, he seemed content to spend time with his friends as a mercenary, and after his coronation, he is still begrudging his crown instead of accepting it as his duty and repentance to his people. His presence does not inspire confidence. In fact, he is dividing people, with some of them hating him for leaving, and he is not able to properly make a case as to why they should trust him now. He complains about how he had been treated terribly in the Stronghammer cells when the king was bewitched, but despite knowing this, he demands to have the king suffer in the same inhumane treatment and takes his luxurious room after Holrir was supposedly cured of whatever bewitched him. This makes Kanan out to be vengeful and a little petty, since he seems immature and petty enough to demand revenge for inconvenient but not life-threatening actions taken against him, even though the perpetrator was not in his right mind, by his own admission. Instead of showing grace, understanding, and mercy, Kanan retaliates by copying the inhumane behavior with no indication that he, himself, Kanan, was bewitched. So while Holrir was doing this, when he was of the wrong mindset, he was bewitched, Kanan is not bewitched, so he is just doing it while supposedly having full functioning mental capabilities and a full awareness of what he's doing. The only reason that I can think for this is that Kanan felt entitled to better treatment due to his bloodline, despite supposedly feeling guilty about having abandoned his people. Not only this, but Kanan was not even crowned yet or embraced by his home city, and he's claiming another king's chambers for his own use. Finally, at the end of the book, Kanan seemingly develops an attraction to one of the clerics, describing her as beautiful. Here's a direct quote from the book. At that moment, I suddenly became aware of her beauty. Her golden hair made her even more exotic, as dwarves mostly had shades of brown, black, and red. Her brown eyes were soft and welcoming, as was her clear skin. This is too much detail to suggest anything but a growing attraction with intentions behind it, even though he's with Gwen. I personally hate love triangles, so I, didn't, I don't really want to see one if the book series continues, but if the author is going to do one, that's fine. But you have to be careful to have reasons beyond physical attraction as to why there's a difficult choice between them. Otherwise, it will reflect poorly on the character in the middle, in this case, Kanan. If Kanan's head can be turned by physical beauty, what does that say about his feelings for Gwen? Speaking of Gwen, she leaves to hunt down the Dark Wizard by herself and protect the realm when this should be Kanan's job. He should be sending someone after the Dark Wizard, or at the least working on a plan to combat him. That should not be Gwen's job. Speaking of Gwen, Gwen gives me supportive, confident fighter girlfriend vibes, but not really anything deeper. We get some tidbits about elf culture as a whole, but I don't remember getting a backstory for her 
Where did she come from? What was her life like? What was her family like? Why was she a mercenary? What was her goal besides working with Kanan and Drogar? What did she like to do besides fight? I don't know. I don't really know that much about her. She just kind of exists in the book to be a side character and supporting character in Kanan's story. Drogar, the other mercenary friend, is a bit better than Gwen in terms of having more of a backstory. We know he wants to open an ale shop or something because his dad had one. There's also a girl he'd like to court, and he carved a little statue of him, Kanan, and Gwen as kind of like a friendship memorial, which was really cute. Other than that, though, I get goofy sidekick vibes from him because he's, he's basically portrayed like the goofy friend who makes all the jokes and wisecracks and who eats all the food. As for the antagonist, Taruk, he seems like a worthy antagonist at first. As a matter of fact, he was reading kind of like Azog to the Kanan's Thorin, especially when it was revealed that Taruk killed Kanan's grandfather in a similar manner. But the teeth are taking out of him a little bit a couple times. First with the rock giants, he tries to make demands using his dark elf wizard as backup, but their plan ultimately fails as the magic doesn't work on rock giants. It's framed as a... You do this. No. Fine. Alas, my plan has failed. And when trolls attack the rock giants, Kanan, Gwen, and Drogar escape. Finally, in the climax, Taruk feels more like an overeager adolescent warrior. Kanan, I'll got you. It just seemed a little underwhelming and immature to me rather than something that a deadly serious warrior would say out of nowhere. They weren't even in the middle of a conversation amidst a furious battle. Taruk was just running up to Kanan and he just shouted that. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that that is something that I would be shouting in battle. It just, it didn't really resonate with me. He didn't have to say that. It's clear that he wants Kanan dead, so it felt a little unnecessary, over the top, and a little comical. And if this is the response of the reader, then it's hard to become immersed in the conflict at the moment. It makes the primary antagonist seem weak, childish, and like they are not to really be taken seriously. Continuing forward, I would say that the biggest thing to focus on would be fleshing out the characters. A good method I learned in intro to fiction writing is to start by asking four questions about all of the major characters. First. What do they want? Determining what a character wants informs how the character will behave in certain situations. This will also require characters to work towards some kind of goal, which will make them more engaging to read. Second, what is the secret that they have? Some secrets are relatively small, some are larger, but a lot of times there is something that a character knows and wants to keep other people from knowing. That can create a lot of tension regarding them whenever that subject is brought up and it introduces obvious conflict. Third is a contradiction that the character has. In Disney's Tangled, all the brutes in the tavern that Rapunzel and Flynn go to have stereotypical tough guy personas, but they all have interests involving a softer side to them as well. One of them collects ceramic unicorns. Find a couple of traits that seemingly contradict each other and see how you can play with them to create a more complex character. Finally, what is a character's weakness or vulnerability? This could be a physical way to defeat and limit them, but it can also be a psychological weakness. In Kanan's case, he can feel like he's not worthy to be king after leaving, a decision that will persistently haunt him as he tries to keep it from his friends, fearing that they would never trust him again. There you have a weakness and a secret. This can also help the character feel real so that the readers can better empathize with them. As for dialogue, this can be tricky to write in a way that sounds natural. Overall, I was not bothered by the dialogue most times. Sometimes, however, it could be clunky or otherwise weirdly phrased. During Kanan's coronation, the person speaking said, Make his reign last longer than his. The first his being referring to Kanan, and the second his referring to 
Canaan's father, which feels oddly like a slight about the previous high king's death, which felt a little weird to say from a supposed good guy who's coronating the next high king, but whatever. <laughs> a random guard character reveals his name for no reason that was apparent to me until he died on the next page, and Kanan was strangely upset about it. By upset, I mean wrathful. It was like he'd killed someone Kanan knew rather than someone Kanan just met. Gwen's advice to not think of Kanan's past guilt is just terrible, and I don't know why other characters keep repeating it. He can't run from the past. He must learn from it and make amends. You don't get to hand wave your mistakes away as, oh well, it was the past. He needs to earn that trust back instead of pretending that the valid distrust for him isn't there. The underlying idea of letting go of the past doesn't seem to work as well when you pair it with a backstory like Kanan's where his irresponsibility and cowardice plunged the realm into civil war. Now, if he wants to lead, letting go of the past isn't what he needs. He needs to atone from it and earn back the trust of his people before he can truly lead them as their new high king. Switching over from written speech to narrative prose, one of the first rules of writing you'll learn in class is show, don't tell. Now, not everything has to be shown. For example, if you're recapping an earlier conversation or something that's not very important to the story in short bursts, it may be sufficient to just tell us. However, a good rule of thumb is to try showing whenever possible as it is more engaging and immersive. Good advice I've gotten from a booktuber I listened to is, whenever you can see that you've told something to the reader, tell yourself to prove it and see if you can rewrite it. If you can't, then see if you can vary how you tell it. Sometimes you can describe it in narration, like what happens frequently in this book. Sometimes, though, you can also describe it in an exposition dialogue. This is something that the author struggled with a little. For instance, on page 221, the dire wolves are described as follows. The dire wolves were black with red war paint, giving them a vicious look. Their riders were smaller than the average orc, though they wielded short bows and javelins. This can be rewritten to... The direwolves snarled, lurching closer to us with each push from their, their muscled legs, the red war paint against their black fur looking as blood. Their riders, though smaller than the average orc, were no less eager, readying their bows and javelins. Not only is this a better description, in my opinion, it grounds the description in action, describing the physical features of the wolves and their riders in organic ways without feeling like a pause in the story to describe the thing. How did I prove they looked vicious? The description of snarling, lurching, and the comparison to blood evoke the imagery of viciousness. The second sentence then reinforces the first, tying the writer's eagerness not only to taller orcs, but in proximity to the wolves' description, the dire wolves as well. Their action of readying the bows and javelins further indicates violence instead of simply telling the reader that they have them. On the other hand, it would be hard to show Kanan's internal description of Kai Durin Pass outside of a flashback. However, instead of stopping the narrative by having a page and a half of history, have Kanan tell his companions this story, much like Legolas does when he, Gimli, and Aragorn are walking the paths of the dead. It's still telling, but the explanation is happening in real time. The story hasn't stopped, and the other characters could comment on the story, working to characterize them as well. As you can gather from the excerpts I've read so far, the story is in first-person point of view, which should invite the reader to have a greater intimacy with the POV character. But in this case, Kanan's feelings seem oddly distant. For instance, on pages 199 and 200, 
There's a scene where Kanan, Gwen, Drogar, and Ulrich stumble across a battlefield where strong hammers are fighting iron beards. This is one of the scenes where Kanan appears remorseful of his decision not to take the throne, thinking that the civil war between clans could have been avoided if he did. However, his description of the battle and his internal monologue of his guilt felt oddly distant. I don't know if it's because I wasn't relating to him that much for the first 200 pages, if it just felt like it wasn't set up well, a lack of physicality, or a mixture of everything. The descriptions of the battle were stated matter-of-factly with very little feeling. Kanan falls to his knees, weeps, and leans into his friend's support, but it lacks the physical details of what he's feeling. It feels separate. Instead of tying his turmoil to what he's seeing and describing those things together, it describes the battle in plain terms of what is happening, and then Kanan's reaction. Then it goes back to plainly describing the battle. And while I'm not sure how far he could go with the audience he's writing for, there weren't any indications of the true brutality of war, particularly civil war. Kanan doesn't even consider trying to stop them, even if he knew it would be pointless. Seeing Kin kill Kin should be absolutely torturous. And I got that it upset him, but it didn't really feel like it had the weight that it really should particularly when factoring in Kanan's guilt. Sometimes awkward descriptions were used, such as saying, his voice peaked on page 205, or saying that the dark elf spy's voice sounds like an elf when it's clear that she sounds like an elf because she is one. Additionally, the transition to the only flashback I can remember starting on page 281 was also a little awkward, saying, I took myself to the past. The formatting of the flashback was the same as the formatting for present-day narration as well, and there was no line break, italics, or any kind of shift that was noticeable. If the reader misses the transition, it's easy to get confused when Kanan's already dead dad is dying. If they didn't miss the transition, I took myself to the past also reads really awkwardly, as if saying, the flashback starts now. A transition like, I closed my eyes and breathed in the fumes, and then changing the formatting to indicate a flashback would be smoother. Finally, the book says that it was edited by the author himself. While I wasn't looking for typos, I did find a couple, though in fairness, I only noticed it a couple of times, and even professionally published books can occasionally have a typo. For an independently published book, where his financial situation may not be allowing for the same quality or frequency of editing for other people leading to him doing it himself, it can be even harder to catch typos like this. So that was not something that was that big of a deal, in my opinion. In terms of pacing, the book is highly plot-focused and is really fast-paced. The scene of the characters stumbling across the Civil War battle is just shy of two pages. They go from travel to battle to travel to battle, and there isn't really an opportunity to slow down that much. The scene starting on 228 is similarly short. It doesn't really convey anything we don't know already, and it says little to progress the characters or story. Gwen and Kanan liked each other before that. Kanan finds Gwen singing. They have a brief conversation. She kisses him. And then they go back to their beds and the scene is over. I don't feel a strong connection or chemistry between the two of them. A final example is once Kanan arrives in the Holy City, he gives like three lines of battle strategy to defend his home from the oncoming orc army. But then we skip to a summary of how he spent the next few hours with Gwen teaching her about the dwarf language, and then skipping to Kanan's coronation. Spending so little time on the defense of his home almost serves to trivialize it, and the urgency suffers because of it. Speaking of urgency, I'm going to use the term narrative weight to refer to how important certain events feel to the plot, 
versus how important I think that they were meant to feel. First, the conflict between whether or not Canaan's people will rally behind him seems perfunctory at times. Instead of exploring the taboo nature of what he did, people's justified reaction to it, and how he will have to earn his redemption and convince his people to give him a chance, the people he needs to be on his side already are, or quickly are after meeting him. If not automatically, like the guards defying the steward's order to execute Canaan, then they will come around like Rodian, who didn't trust Canaan's battle plan at first, but then was forced to when he was proven wrong. Even in that case, however, it had nothing to do with Canaan's departure or redemption. The conflict is just seemingly dropped. He'll meet some people who say that they will not follow him, but his coronation is a happy affair, and everyone there supports him and treats him luxuriously. Speaking of the coronation, why is the coronation a week away from his arrival and planned with such exuberance? They're preparing for a siege at best, an all-out war at worst. Shouldn't they be focusing on that and conserving resources? Could the official coronation not wait? And if there's a cultural reason why it couldn't, did it have to be so full of pomp and circumstance with women throwing flower petals, luxurious carriage rides, ornate armor and robes, and courtyards full of cheering people? They had fireworks set off as well. In the week that we skipped over, he went to fittings and messed around with his friends, and now it's a legit party, all during valuable time that we should be preparing for war. I don't think that it was mentioned that he made any preparations for the war, only the crowning ceremony. It was only on page 301 that Canaan turns his mind to less frivolous matters and remembers the battle. During the feast, he asks if this is a wise use of time and resources, and the response he gets is, How can a leader lead on an empty stomach? This excuse does not outweigh the frivolity of the excessive banquet, as he can just eat regular dinner rations without indulging in access, and pointing out the strange priorities does not really fix them. It hurts the tension and urgency of the story, because clearly, if we can have this great party with an orc and dark elf army on its way to attack us, then the situation must not be so dire after all, especially since almost everyone is legitimately enjoying themselves. If this was something done to boost morale, like Theoden's arrogant talk before the Battle of Helm's Deep in the movie, then that would be one thing. Because he only said what he said because his men's courage hung by a thread and he was trying to boost their confidence and morale. Here it seems like if Aragorn's eventual coronation at the end of Return of the King happened, but before the ring was destroyed, so the threat of Mordor would still be looming over everybody, and we'd still potentially be having the end of the world with Sauron taking over, but we're going to take this time to have a really nice coronation from Aragorn instead of focusing on the threat at hand. As mentioned earlier, this loyalty that Kanan gains from his people also does not feel earned, at least not to me. So when Lothgar swears fealty to him, I was left wondering why. What has Kanan done to earn this respect? In the Hobbit films, Balin tells about the Battle of Moria, where Thorin earned his name, Oakenshield. There is one who I could follow. There is one who I could call king, he said. This wasn't because of Thorin's birthright, though the crown was unquestionably his. It was because of his courage and valor in battle. He defeated Azog the Defiler, in the movie version at least, and seemingly at the time killed him, then rallied the dwarves and snatched victory from certain defeat. Kanan never has a moment like this, nor did he prove any particular valor throughout the story like Aragorn did. It didn't feel like this was set up very well. 
The events of the story do not feel interconnected in any particular cause and effect structure or narrative structure that would result in a building arc, a building tension that would culminate in Canaan earning his people's loyalty and saving the day. There are a bunch of battles and Canaan will occasionally reflect on how he regrets his actions, but he doesn't really do anything more to atone for them. It's always brushed under the rug because it's in the past, so it supposedly doesn't matter anymore. But it does matter, or at least it should. Some scenes feel like they can be moved and not much will change, if anything, and the final battle doesn't feel any different from the rest of the battles other than knowing on the surface level that this is Kanan's home. We do not feel this weight, though, as the battle is written like any of the other ones, except we have more good guys dying. And even then, the weight still isn't there. The Dark Wizard leaves just when I was wondering how the good guys would beat him. Lothgar died in a way stupider than Loki in Infinity War. He cried, We can take him! Him being Taruk. Together. Then he charged and was killed immediately. Drogar, who I had more attachment to given that he was more well-rounded than the other side characters, also died, but his death was cheapened by my laughter at his ridiculous decision to drop his weapons before attacking Taruk. And that was already after Kanan gave away his element of surprise. After Drogar was stabbed in the stomach, he moves around a lot afterwards despite the wound, and then despite describing an agonized scream and a listless stare, his body is described as having a smiling, loving face for his funeral. I don't think he died smiling, especially since it's not like he survived long enough to speak any kind of words to a loved one or anything. He died while fighting, so I don't really know why he'd be smiling, especially since tear tracks were also described. Drogar's death at least had the result of prompting warning scenes focused on remembering him between Gwen and Kanan, which were really well done. But Joran, the wizard's death, had little impact on the story. At first, I thought it would be parallel to Gandalf's sacrifice in Moria, so I was surprised when he didn't come back. Part of me was glad that it was unique, but then not much changed for having the character die there. He was brought up a couple of times before Ulrich grieved for him, but there wasn't a lasting impact on the characters or the plot. Losing a wizard should have left a bigger hole in my opinion. As for world building, I think it was the strongest part of the story for me, and it was what drew me into this book in the first place. I love the similarity to Middle-earth, and I was really excited reading about dwarves, which you all know are my favorite creatures in Middle-earth if you've listened to some of my other podcasts. It makes sense that this was a world he created for a LARPing team, as it seems well thought out, and he's clearly passionate about it. Much like Tolkien, the master linguist, Kennedy devoted time to creating a language for his dwarves, which, at the time of the blog interview, had 200 words in it. That said, there are some aspects I think can be approved on in future books, or that I would have liked to see more in this one. First, how are these armies sneaking up on them? Does the Holy City not have a watchtower or a warning system in place? The other dwarven strongholds? I find it a little hard to believe that they wouldn't have at least some kind of watchtower or beacon system to be on the lookout for enemies for these strongholds, especially if this situation involves being at a civil war where other dwarf factions could be attacking them. Second, as mentioned before, what is more important for following a king? The right bloodline or valor, honor, and loyalty? How does the dwarven culture handle situations like Canaan's? How would he atone? Is there a ritual like the Mandalorian has to undergo to receive redemption in the Disney Plus Mandalorian series? Does he have to be seen as blessed by a dwarven father, ancestor, or deity? Something similar to that happened in the Bridge Kingdom series, which I absolutely loved. 
So the main girl essentially betrayed a kingdom and led to its king being captured and his enemies conquering it. Her redemption in the eyes of those people was complete when, after an entire book of trying to help them reclaim their kingdom and atone, she swam through shark-infested waters without being attacked. This was seen as a sign that she was truly loyal as per the culture of the kingdom. Third, humans and elves. There are clearly humans and elves in other races, but they didn't really play as big a role in this story as it was mainly focused on the dwarves. In subsequent books, I would like to see more fleshing out of the elven and human cultures, along with halflings and any other race that was in the book. Finally, to bring the review back to the reason I picked up the book in the first place, its similarity to Middle-earth, which drew me in. I'm going to go through a lightning round of Easter eggs or similarities that I noticed. Now, to be clear, the author did not copy Tolkien, even if his bio referenced his love for Lord of the Rings, as well as his tendency to create characters in that world. The story is substantially original, from what I can tell, but as a fellow Middle-earth nerd, I thought it would be fun to see how many similarities I could find. First, the dwarf language. I'm no linguist, but I believe Kennedy may have used some Gaelic inspiration, and Kuzdul, the language of the dwarves in Tolkien's Middle-earth, is rumored to be based on Hebrew. In Resurgence, Kanan refers to his friend as brother, and the term that he used in the dwarf language is very similar to brother, which is Gaelic for brother as well. He uses the Kaz root as well. There's a dwarf realm called Kazakim, much like the dwarven name for Moria, which is Kazadum. Second, references to dwarves, dwarf clans, and other races. Orcs call Canaan Longbeard on page 43, which is the name of one of the dwarf clans in Middle-earth. Doran's folk, actually, so the main one. Two of the dwarf clans are called Iron Fists and Iron Beards. Iron Fists and Firebeards are two of the seven dwarf clans in The Hobbit. There's a race of orcs called Gundark Orcs, which sounds similar to the Hobbit's Gundabad Orcs. There are a race of short people called Halflings. The heroes come across orcs, rock giants, and evil flying creatures like the fell beasts from Middle-earth. Dire wolves are ridden by orcs, like wargs are ridden by orcs in Middle-earth. Third, character or setting similarities. Taruk beheaded Kanan's grandfather, much like Azog did with Thorin. Speaking of which, Taruk has a grudge against Kanan, much like Azog did for Thorin. Kaiduran Pass is what they take to their holy city, named after Ragnall, the first dwarf to awaken. Durin the Deathless is one of the first dwarfs in Middle-earth to awaken as well. His line is the important one with Thorin, Feely, and Keeley. They had a wizard friend who sacrificed himself against a dark equal so that the main group could escape like Gandalf did in Moria. Though I was surprised he didn't come back by the end of the book unless it's in the works for the sequel, which now that I think about it makes more sense because that's when Gandalf came back as well. But the sequel is not out as of this recording. Duliatar's backstory is like Moria, Erebor, and Dunharo smashed together. Hulir, a stronghammer king, is bewitched like Theoden. He doesn't seem to have ever truly recovered, though he doesn't really play much of a role. His son is the one that Kanan interacts with. He undergoes Theoden's physical transformation up to and including the where is my son question. His son is alive, though, turns out. On page 242, a bewitched Hulir mutters that the pure bloodline is ended. Kanan is a seal dwarf's heir, like Aragorn. Steward of Ragnall is like Denethor. He says, rule of Gondor, well, Ragnall, is mine and no others. He's giving those vibes. On page 312, Rodian, another dwarf lord, arrives with reinforcements in preparation for a hopeless battle, much like the elves did at Helm's Deep in the movie, though this did not happen in the Two Towers novel. They have a deity called Arwe, like Aule or Manwe, who are two of the Valor in Middle-earth. 
Finally, there's a chapter called Return of the King. Enough said. Overall, I didn't love this book as much as I was hoping to, but it is not terrible. In fact, I think that there is a lot of potential with this world and story. And I would encourage the author to continue to write as this work is clearly a passion for him and to work on his craft. More writing will result in better, more developed work. My biggest drawbacks for this work would have to be the characterization, the lack of narrative weight, and the lack of a strong story structure of rising tension and cause and effect progression in the plot, as well as the distance I felt from Kanan despite the first person point of view. The world building was the highlight of the book, but I think the rest can be developed more. That said, I hope that the author continues the series, as I would be interested in seeing where it goes and how the writing improves from here. Similarly, if the premise of this book is something you may be interested in, I would encourage you to give it a try yourself, as you may have a better experience than I did. I might just be too picky, since 7 out of the 8 reviews on Amazon were positive. If you enjoyed my breakdown, please check out Entertainment Rebooted's podcast, available on most, if not all, podcast platforms, and listen for us live at 1 p.m. on Sundays, directly after Sports Power Talk. This is Natalie from Entertainment Rebooted. Thank you very much for listening.